The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Henry II. your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And we've arrived at Henry II. The first of the Angevins or the Plantagenets, as they're often called. Yeah, yeah, I prefer Plantagenet, but they're Angevin really, I suppose, aren't they? Yeah. Plantagenet, I think it's named something that Geoffrey Plantagenet, Henry's father, used to wear. But apparently it wasn't until much later along, sort of early 15th century, that they started to title themselves Plantagenet. Oh. And historians didn't really use it until sort of a couple oh. of hundred years later. It's clearer, Angevin. Angevin. It is, it's, yeah. because he is a son of Geoffrey of Anjou. Um, yeah, so Henry II we're doing this week. We've left the Normans behind. Last time we had uh, Stephen... And Matilda fighting a civil war for a yeah. the country. So we're now actually chapter three of Rex Factor, really. In a way, yeah. yeah. We've done Saxons, Saxons Normans, Normans, or uh, chapter 3.5. A little bit of... Um, bit of Viking. A bit of Viking. Indeed. Um, say at the start, as we did last time, if you want to get in touch with us, please do. Email us, rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com. Leave a comment on the website or contact us on Twitter, as some people have done. Uh, Maury Irvine, listen to the uh, Rufus episode. Oh, yeah. Enjoyed him very much, said he's a great character. That hair, those shoes, the clothes, by the holy face of Luca. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> I really liked him, actually. He was great. He was uh, great. Fell shoes business. Um, and the Facebook page is underway, I promise. Hey. So, where are we? When was we born? are on Henry II. So, as I just said, we've had the Civil War, which is sort of 1135, give or take, 54, between Stephen and Matilda. Stephen remained king throughout, apart from one little blip. But Matilda got to the agreement that her son, Henry, would succeed Stephen as the heir. This is what I was saying just earlier. I'm, I, I was, I, now, if you listened to the last one, we weren't a big fan of Stephen. He didn't come across uh, too well. Neither did Matilda, really. No, it was only Stephen's wife yeah. who uh, did we, win yeah, it was good. respect. Um, so, although we didn't like Matilda, um, Stephen just because he was incompetent, but prefer Matilda's line, because then you've got Henry II and all yeah, that sort of stuff. So Henry, so, Stephen was a nicer guy. But yeah, but we want actually Matilda's line. Yeah. yeah, and we have now got the rightful succession. Mm-hmm. So Henry II then in 1154 becomes heir to the throne. Um, he was born in 1133, son of Geoffrey of Anjou and Empress Matilda. Matilda was the daughter of Henry I. So we have now seen that sort yeah. of direct line yeah. back again. Um, becomes king in 1154, so he's about 21 years old. So he's got okay. a young chap. Approaching yeah. the peak of his powers, and twenty-second great-grandfather of Elizabeth II. Getting closer. Number coming right down. 
Uh, now we've got quite a few descriptions of what he actually looked like, which is quite good, so if we just indulge. This is uh, Gerald of Wales describing him. A man of reddish freckled complexion with a large round head, grey eyes that glowed fiercely and grew bloodshot in anger, a fiery countenance and a harsh cracked voice. His neck was poked forward slightly from his shoulders, his chest was broad and square, his arms strong and powerful. His body was stocky, with a pronounced tendency towards fatness due to nature rather than self-indulgence, which he tempered with exercise. And then Peter of Blois. The Lord King has been red-haired so far, except that the coming of old age and grey hair has altered that colour somewhat. His height is medium, so that neither does he appear great among the small, nor yet does he seem small among the great. Curved legs, a horseman's shins, broad chest and a boxer's arms all announce him as a man strong, agile and bold. That's, I love, Peter of Blois, that's the best description I've ever heard. Instead of saying he was ginger, yes. he says, at the moment it's red, but it is going a bit grey. And then he doesn't say he's medium height, he just it goes all this, he, he looks great amongst the great, but not too great amongst the small. Yeah. <laughs> he's truly, clearly trying to get the king on side. And he's a sort of, he's a strong, powerful... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They and as we see later, he's a man of activity, very athletic, always on the move, always on his horse, always standing. Yeah. Yeah, and very kingly. That's what we want to see. He is exactly what you'd expect from a medieval king. It's powerful good, it's man. It's going to be a good one, I think. So, just a quick recap in terms of how he secures the throne. We'd have the civil war. Uh, later on, he had made a couple of forays into England himself and a bit of skirmishing. Oh, yeah. But no yeah. real success. However, he then becomes a very powerful prince. His father, Geoffrey of Anjou, dies unexpectedly early, in the early 1150s. So from him, he inherits the territories of Anjou, Maine and Normandy. And then, 1152, he marries Eleanor of Aquitaine, much more of whom later, uh, which brings, obviously, Aquitaine and also Gascony under his dominion. So by the time that he then goes back to England, 1153, rather than just being this prince who's trying to get his uh, his due crown, suddenly he's actually this powerful... Uh, Must be hugely. That's most of, the, most of the left of France. Which it's essentially, yeah, the west of France. Yeah, left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pretty, yeah, right down to the Pyrenees. So then he comes over, and with Stephen they have the Treaty of Wallingford, where Stephen agrees that when he dies he will name Henry as king, mm. which he does as heir. So the first challenge for Henry is to restore order, because if we remember, the Civil War is often also called the Anarchy. So Stephen's legacy was that royal revenue was down by two-thirds, lots of royal land had been lost, Lots and lots of castles owned by this huge number of earls who are more powerful than the king in many areas. And lots of border territories, Wales, Scotland, and indeed Normandy. So everything's really decentralised mm. and isn't that great when Henry takes over. So it's quite a challenge. So he's thinking, that guy didn't have the right factor. Absolutely. Gonna, this is not going to be This is thing. how you do yeah. it. So first off, uh, with castles, he sets about destroying all the notorious new castles that had been built um, and were against... Royal, royal control, and he brought others within his dominion. So some he destroyed, others he re-fortified and took control of. And built. And built, as we shall see, yes. Um, there were lots of Flemish mercenaries all about uh, England who'd been brought in by partly Stephen, but I think also other nobles, to try and just be their sort of thuggish army. Right. So Henry gets rid of them, sends them all back. Everyone's quite happy about that. Where, where were the mercenaries from? Um, f- uh, well, Flemish, so sort of Belgium, yeah. modern-day Belgium. Okay, cause, yeah. No, Foreign no. troops brought in mm, to yep. cause trouble, much like in uh, Libya at the moment. Are they Flemish? Yes, <laughs> lots of Belgians <laughs> causing trouble. 
Um, he sought to reassort, uh, reassert royal control over the church and made huge reforms in uh, law and order. His real target was to restore things as they were under Henry I, but actually he really goes a lot further in terms of getting a much more uniform picture. Now, is, <clears throat> how accurate is the um, idea that we see the birth of a trial by jury under Henry II? We shall come to that in subjectivity, but it is very much true, I would say. It's not but, to the same extent as we would have now, but it is the sense that you do have a jury of people deciding things on the basis of evidence. Right. OK. Yeah. Well, that's coming up. Coming up. Um, and also he tackles the rebellious earls that there are, and he also limits the number of them and the amount of land that they have. So, again, he's able to assert his control. So by about sort of the late 1150s, he's pretty much got England nicely secured. Um, 11.50, and he came to the throne? 11.54, so the late 11.50, so in about four or five well, years, brilliant. he's got it all under control, which after sort of over ten years of mm. civil war, is no mean feat. However, he does have a number of pretty significant challenges, not least of the fact that he's now in control of what is often termed the Andrevin Empire, which, as you said, is pretty much the left or west, <laughs> however you want to call it, of France. So, really, you know, from the north of Normandy, Brittany, right down to all the Pyrenees. All the way down the port side. Also England, which has had its troubles, and also he's getting overlordship, Scotland, Wales, and even Ireland comes into his dominion as well. So he's got this huge territory, all of which, particularly more so in France and England, is prone to rebellion, prone to lots of changes and border disputes mm. and all sorts of things. So he's got to somehow keep this under control, and he does that by essentially being a peripatetic monarch. Namely, that he is always yeah. moving around, place to place, never stops. That's um, that's a feature of the Orange Bands, isn't it? Mm. Other than John, I suppose. Yeah. So he's moving around at great speed, managing to keep control, and he loses a little bit towards the end, a few bits which now go so but essentially, throughout the reign, he manages to hold on to it as it was. It's Keeps it all going. in order. Very good. Perhaps the biggest challenge for him in terms of, well, partly in terms of his reputation, but for a while in terms of actually being able to secure the territory, was his disputes with Thomas Beckett. Uh, we've got to bring it up, haven't we? We have, we have. I mean, it doesn't really fit into one of our categories, does it? Well, scandal. Oh, scandal, of course. Of course. <laughs> oh. Thank you, forget that one. Yeah, no, I'm just trying to think how can I cram a few castles in. But yeah, scandal, <laughs> of course. Thomas Beckett was, uh, used to be the Chancellor of Henry II, great friend of his, very wealthy man, got on well together, and he was a huge supporter of Henry. But then he, uh, in 1162, appoints him to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Henry thinks this will mean that now he's got his man in place, the Chancellor and Archbishop, he's going to support him, and they're really going to get control over the church. However, what happens is that Thomas Beckett is a much more of a perfectionist than a man who essentially gives his best at whatever he does. And he believed that now he was archbishop, he had to be the perfect archbishop. So he resigned the chancellorship and then just pretty much opposed all the things that Henry tried to do. Something I remember from uh, school about um, Thomas Beckett, there were childhood friends, mm -hmm. and but he wasn't, he wasn't a noble person, he was just a... No, he wasn't originally, no. Just a fella. Mm. What he did do was cause a lot of problem for Henry. Yeah. So he was trying to stop all of Henry's various um, attempts to increase royal control over the church. Um, led to him going into exile for a number of years, sort of in the vein of Anselm. Except that he comes back and in 1170 was murdered by four knights at the altar of Canterbury Cathedral. Which was a huge scandal all across Europe and nearly completely ruined Henry's reign. 
but he was able to recover, partly through good negotiations in Rome, partly through doing public penance and really saying, yeah, sorry about all this. All that business, yeah. Also, he disappeared for Ireland for a year and kept his head down. Hmm. Hmm. Keep yourself out of the papers, yeah. And the other big challenge for him was his own family. As he said, he was married to Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was an incredibly powerful, influential, um, interesting woman. For a while they were getting on quite well, but then they sort of fell out of love somewhat, and then she helped incite his sons to rebel against him. So he had Richard, who becomes Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, and King John, who we've mentioned. There was also the eldest, the young Henry, who he actually crowned in his own lifetime, so he crowned his own son king in 1170 to secure the succession. Mm, yeah, we saw uh, that with the Saxons, they did that sometimes, didn't mm. they? Yeah. And uh, another person called Geoffrey, so he had four adult sons, and he was trying to give them all possession of territory, setting them up to inherit, thinking everything's secure, but they wanted more power, they wanted more land, they wanted more then rather than after he died. So they rebelled, and particularly 1173, 1174, they teamed up with each other, King of Scotland, King of France, Eleanor of Aquitaine, all attacking Henry across England and Europe, but he puts it down. Excellent. Well, that's that's points we're going to see in battliness, but oh, he's, he's the boss, this chap. However, it does peter out a little bit the end uh-huh. of the raid, very end of the raid. He's pretty, basically, he's worn out by three very hard and active decades in charge, and in the end, it was always dominated by reacting to rebellions from his sons. So after the 1173-74 rebellion, they sort of come up again in 1182. But his eldest son, Henry the Young, dies. Gets dysentery or something. Geoffrey mm. also dies in 1186. But 1189, Richard the Lionheart forms an unlikely alliance with King Philip of France. Because Richard is concerned that his father favours John more than him. Which he did. Which he did. So it was good reason. Yeah, yeah. But Richard's concern was that he wanted to go off on the Crusades because in 1187 Jerusalem had been taken by Saladin, so he wanted to go off on a crusade. But he thought, if I go and the inheritance issue isn't settled, he'll die while I'm out and John will get everything. So they had a rebellion, Richard and Philip, and 1189 Henry was forced to concede some of his territories in France and pay homage to them, which is a bit of a humiliation for him right at the end of his life. And then he was very ill, very weary, and then he said to have died not long after hearing that even his favourite son, John, had been part of the rebellion. Oh, poor chap. So uh, only 56, all worn out, Henry dies in 1189. It's not looking good for longevity. Well, that's pretty good, actually, though. 21, you can just run, yeah. So, lots and lots of stuff there. I've done quite a quick overview of that Mm. because there's lots of detail to go into next. So, what we do now is we review... Uh, Henry by a number of factors. Firstly, battliness, uh, scandal and subjectivity. Would you want to be a subject where we each score out of 10 to give a total of 20? And then there are two factual ones in longevity, how long he ruled for, dynasty, how many children he had, and then we decide whether or not he has that certain something which we call the Rex Factor. Yeah, there we are. Let's start. Let's do the review. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Battleiness. So, Battleiness, how good was he as a leader in battle? First of all, as we said, he restores order in England. Um... A lot of that we might put down to subjectivity, but one important thing from a military perspective is that he imposed skewtage, which is a military tax on the earls paid in lieu of service. So this meant that Henry was able to spend lots of money on a new brood of mercenary troops, but one that he kind of kept on going rather than just bringing in and out. And that mm. meant he was able yeah. to use them much more effectively. Yeah, first step to standing armies. <clears throat> Indeed. So the Angevin Empire, as we said, huge territories. We've got Britain, left of France. Mm. He's got to keep order. As we said, he's peripatetic, so he moves at great speed all across his territories to impose order before the rebellions, in the most part, are able to actually start. I read about this. He he um, live, he could mar- do four days' march in one day, so he used to arrive at battles and surprise his enemy yeah. and just presumably... Uh, you know, catch them by surprise. But what I can't understand about that is everyone else must have been able to as well, unless it's just been him going surprise, <laughs> fully armed and taking on a whole <laughs> army. But that would be extra impressive. Still, I mean, that's pretty good for battleness, being able to launch surprise attacks. Yeah. So I mean, so basically, he spent forty-three percent of his time in Nor. I don't know how someone's worked this out to percentages. Forty-three percent of his time in Normandy, thirty-seven percent in England, and twenty percent in France. So you see, he's always. Mm. On the move. Louis the Seventh of France said that he moved so fast he seemed to fly rather than ride. Uh, Peter of Blois again said he never sits unless riding a horse or eating. In a single day, if necessary, as you said, he can run through four or five day marches and thus foiling the plots of his enemies frequently mocks their plots with surprise sudden arrivals. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's Peter again. So he's always off on the moves. And even when he wasn't doing that, as Gerald Wells said, he was addicted to hunting. So at crack of dawn, he was off on horseback, traversing wastelands, penetrating forests and climbing the mountain tops. And then when he comes home, even then, he doesn't really sit down any time. So everyone just gets worn out because it's just constant, always moving. That's brilliant. Always doing something. What a legend. He can never stop. And then his tactics in warfare is why he's, again, able to be so controlling, so dominant. So as we said earlier, castle building which is where you're going to get very advantage. Yes. He builds huge sums strengthening his castles, so sort of thousands of pounds, which is sometimes sort of like a tenth of the royal revenue yeah. a year or something, yeah. really huge amount. But what we're getting now are the big stone keeps, which not always entirely intact now, but what we really th- see now is a castle. If you yeah. walk around and see a castle, it's going to be a stone keep, and Henry II is starting to build them. It's brilliant. And Dover in particular... Yeah, Dover, Wilson, Newcastle, Bamber, some other ones, but Dover, I think partly to 
obviously a defensive thing, but also the pilgrimage route to Canterbury after Thomas Becket yeah, died. Yeah, keep the royal hold over that. Now, you'll talk about this more with Edward I, but there's a problem, is there not, with square keeps? Corners. Mm. Yeah, issue. So uh, you, there's no deflecting of the um, impact. So you've got these square keeps and they, they can take the edges off the corners. They're going to absorb all the impact. And also it's harder to sort of defend down. Exactly. And you can't, if you have a, uh, a you can't, unless you have an, a, a, a jutting out tower, mm. you can't defend across, mm. across a wall. Well, Henry wasn't the man that solved that problem, of course, but he did experiment a little bit. So at Orford Castle, he had an octagonal keep yeah so you yeah. have again it's not quite that same square it's sort of bits jutting but it, not uh, three three jutting out um sort of three almost buttress type things which and it's still really intact yeah but, with, and cool. only the keep the rest mm. of the wall's gone so it's something like that. Yeah, yeah yeah go yeah. check it out however not just good at building castles he's good at capturing castles so remember during the civil war castles had really enforced a stalemate because you had you could just have a few people held up in a castle and it took a huge effort, lots of time, for someone to besiege it successfully and capture it, to the extent that a lot of the time they just didn't bother because it was too much. Henry completely changes the game here with his huge mercenary forces, the fact that he does everything so quickly and so uh, definitively, and also general tactics and siege weaponry. He's able, with minimal effort and huge force, to just capture a castle very, very quickly. And this transforms the way society works because now you can only hold out in a castle if you're very rich enough that you can have a big army yourself and presumably build quite a big, strong stone keep. Brilliant. So it's, we're going to have a, a cold, well, a hot war of um, yeah. a uh, arms race, rather, of um, castle building. Yeah, so the impregnable is now pregnable, as one historian said. Um, so he's got the deal over castles. He also manages to get pretty much overlordship of Britain. So... Uh, in Ireland, 1171, he actually conquers the country for the first time. So Ireland is now part of the British Isles, politically, which it has never been before. Mm. So there's always been links, yeah. but never there. And Ireland, apparently, at this time, was described as being barbarous and uncouth with bestial sexual practices, and apparently ate meat during Lent. Oh, so, like the church elders. Well, apparently the, the Pope, the papacy, actually encouraged... Uh, Henry to go, recognised his lordship of Ireland and then praised him for being such a great prince for conquering Ireland. So he got this very odd thing in considering later history where yeah, the Pope says, well done England, take that Ireland. Yeah. It's what you should do. Uh, and then John is later named as Lord of Ireland, so he's able to give a bit more territory to one of his sons. Lord? Oh, oh, oh sorry, Henry yeah. calls him Lord of Ireland. Yeah. Scotland, at the start of his reign, he restored Cumbria and Northumberland to England, which had previously under Stephen had effectively gone back to Scotland. And then 1174, during that big uh, rebellion, William the Lion, the King of Scotland, was advancing south, that he gets defeated at Annick and captured, with the extent that southern Scotland then becomes kind of an English fiefdom. Right. Uh, it's not part of English territories, but they've got sort of... Uh, Annick Castle is captured, is he? Ooh. Uh, well, at Annick, who's probably yeah. held at Annick Castle, yeah. Another good castle. Another very good castle. And then Wales, slightly less successful, but 1165 he has a campaign to secure the fealty of the Welsh princes. There are still lots of little rebellions here and there where they sort of push to see how far they can go, but basically they acknowledge him as being their yeah. sort of superior. So he now has properly got England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales under his rule. That's brilliant. Sometimes I mean, that's direct, sometimes score. indirect indeed. So we've got Britain. Yeah. Properly there now. 
Fabulous. Fabulous. Um, as we said, the 1173-74 rebellion is probably the biggest threat that he faces in terms of battles. Um, the sons rebel because, as we said, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the relationship had soured. Um, in 1167, I think, John was born, and she was 45 at that time. Okay. So basically, she's now middle-aged. She's not going to have any more children. Bad King John? Yes. Old hens lay bad eggs. <laughs> A very true... Yeah, that's probably where it came from. <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe it is. Um, but Henry's about ten years younger, so he's still mid thirty. so he's still in the prime of his life, and he falls in love with somebody else, Rosamund Clifford, and then he's sort of openly seeing her. So that's why the relationship sours with Eleanor. And as you said, the sons aren't happy enough that they're going to get these huge territories after he dies. They want power and influence now. So they all rebel in 1173, um, as do, as we said, William the Lion of Scotland, Louis VII of France, all being encouraged by Eleanor. It's a big challenge because he's got the whole... All on all sides. All over the place. Yeah. So the response, he, William of Scotland gets captured, he chases Louis and the young Henry into France, chases Richard out into Poitou, gets rid of uh, Geoffrey as well, and then eventually they realise, game's up, it's too good. So he's put down the rebellion through decisive action. That's jolly impressive. But he's also very magnanimous uh, in victory. So they have a peace conference where he forgives his sons, basically restores all of their territories to them, because you know, he wants them. I should have learned from Stephen. That is the problem, though, of course. You can't be too nice. Mm. However, what he does do is imprison Eleanor of Aquitaine. Because he can't divorce her. It's, she's too powerful to do that. You can't kill her. Obviously, yeah. he's not Henry VIII. No trouble and strife. Yeah. Uh, but she's effectively under custody for the rest of the reign, which, you know, 1174, that's about 15 years that he, well. she is effectively imprisoned. Obviously in luxury and comfort. Yeah. But nevertheless, he tries to keep her out yeah. of harm's way. Troublemaker. So he knows where the trouble lies. <laughs> However, he does have some difficulties and some negatives for battliness. It's debatable to what extent it's really an empire. And some people argued it's either like a confederation or a commonwealth, because the empire term isn't really used until the 19th century by historians. Never really used at the time. He doesn't title himself emperor. And as we've seen, he's planning to split it between his sons, so he has no sense of this empire uh, yeah, which he'll give so, yeah. to the eldest. It's much more lots of territories which he's able to mm. palm off. However, it's still quite impressive that under him, yeah. he can still see it as an empire, yeah. even if he does mean to break it up. He isn't great at big campaigns, so while he's good in battle and he's able to respond to issues, he isn't able to do so well when he sort of goes off with a big army and says, right, I'm going to conquer somewhere. So in particular, at 1159 in Toulouse, he had a bit of a setback where he launched a big campaign and after some initial gains found his rival in France, Louis VII, a bit too powerful and withdrew. So it wasn't really a great defeat, but at the same time... He knew when to withdraw, though. That's pretty the other thing. The other negative, of course, 1189, he does lose some territory to Richard Lionheart and Philip. Mm. But again, you know, he's at pretty much at the end of his life, tied out. He's not able to be quite as powerful as he was before. And, you know, his sons should just give him a break. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. They're pretty yeah. ungrateful, because he's doing... All the stuff that he's doing is to hold it together so that he can pass it on to them. Yeah. <laughs> and yet they keep on rebelling. The other interesting thing with him is that as good as he is in battle, he actually doesn't like uh, war at all. So he said that he actually took much more uh, grief from the loss of life than he did joy for victory. That's brilliant. That's just another That's another great edge to his character. Is this the start of a, a the whole piety move? 
amongst kings at this time. A little bit, although of course he's going to be succeeded by Richard the First, Richard the Lionheart, who maybe is a little more uh, aggressive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't get too quick towards. Uh, That's going to be good. Party. That one I've just but thought. Of, yeah. Nevertheless, that is uh, quite a lot of stuff there for battliness. Mm. Maybe not any one big open battle that we might like from previous times. And as you said, he isn't conquering a lot of it. He's kind of inherited and keeping it. But nevertheless, I think it's brilliant. It's really I can't. I can't think of. As you said, if, if, if there was a big battle, mm. fine. But when it is required, bosh, he just suppresses it and does it well. And it's because he's always everywhere. No yeah. one's ever able to start to get to the point at which they can take him on in battle. I think it's brilliant. I mean, the only... I was talking to you earlier about this. The only way it's bad is in that he has a rebellion from his sons, which isn't necessarily battliness, it's poor parenting. Indeed. But we don't score for parenting. Well, he's getting. I'm in my mind. I am. I'm giving him a great score for battliness. <laughs> I think that's great. It, the defeat of uh, the uh, the whole concept of castles has got to come in. Yeah, castles, building and capturing. Yeah, yeah. siege warfare starting to work that out a bit better. Hmm. Uh, the Britain thing's got to count for a lot. That's very good, because we've had lots of people that have sort of started to do that. Mm. But nobody's ever taken Ireland before. Mm. I mean, this is the Rex Hatcher, the Kings and Queens of England, Yeah. but it's been clear from the pattern of the previous ones that that's been the aim of a lot of them. Yeah. And so these French ones, you start to build the French bit in, but to gain all of Britain whilst holding on to mm. Port Side Although, of again, you know, what we see in Scotland and Wales, Edward I and Edward III would obviously go a lot further in terms of actually controlling yeah. those countries. So it's not completely whole. But he's getting dominion of them. Definitely, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going really high on this what one. What are you going to give him? I'm going to have to give nine again. Give him a nine. I'm trying to think of who would give a ten. Oh, I know who would give a ten too. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay, nine. nine. Uh, I'm going to give him an eight. I think he's very, very impressive, but I think some of the others who've had the big battles and had the yeah. conquest okay. rather than maintenance. But it's still very good. Eight's a great score, so that's 17 in total. He's only beaten by William the Conqueror. Only William the Conqueror, level with uh, Athelstan and Harold II. Very good start. That's surprising, Harold II. Well, because he was great, wasn't he? Oh, Except he did the same was. thing, marching up and down. Yeah. We like marching, apparently. Indeed. <laughs> we do, yeah. If you walk, you do well. Scandal. So there's, there's good stuff here yeah, as well. This is really juicy. Before we get on to the big chap, Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, one of the most probably famous women in English history, possibly even in European history, very, very influential, and, uh, yeah, one of the standout characters in the medieval world. Said to have been uh, very beautiful, although we don't have actually a description of her as such. Right. Um, but very notable woman. Scandalous before she came uh, to be Henry's wife. She was originally married to his great rival, Louis VII of France. Ah. Um, and apparently her exotic Eastern tastes were a bit uh, ill at ease with the rather conservative French court. So she didn't like her time. The conservative French court? Yeah, they were a bit conservative at that time under Louis VII. He was a little Teen Louis, what they called Louis the Sixteenth. Yeah, yeah. Very <laughs> yeah. different place. Very different. Um, she accompanied Louis on a, a disastrous Second Crusade, and apparently she took quite a, an active role, disagreeing with her husband's strategies. And particularly, she brought along a huge ladies' uh, retinue, i.e., lots and lots of women of court. Came she along came along the well. Second Crusade. So. Yeah, she yeah, came yeah, along, yeah, and so. loads of mm. other women came along as well, which was mm. probably quite a logistical nightmare for. <laughs> Louis to have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And worse even than that, she was rumoured to be having an affair with her uncle, Prince Raymond, at the time, i.e. on the crusade. Oh. 
indeed very scandalous woman. So they divorced, uh, having had no sons and the relationship breaking down. And then Louis gets pretty irritated when she marries Henry literally months or even weeks after divorcing Louis. So she's straight in there. She's obviously already planned to move from one to the next. It's clever. Very clever. And then at the coronation in England, um, she's dressed in exceptional clothes, the like of which never seen before in England. Golden dresses from Constantinople, uh, royal mantles of silk, golden embroidery. Her headdress has got gold and pearl and rubies and emeralds. Never been seen before such luxury. And she even gets the priests and the archbishops to dress quite to dress up. buoyantly as well. Yeah. <laughs> so no one's ever seen anything quite like it. And then, of course, when the relationship sours, um, she encourages rebellion against Henry. And mm. she then becomes this source of uh, real threat to his reign. And the fact that he keeps his sons in position but imprisons her is probably quite a sign of what a dangerous character she is, yeah. if crossed. Yeah, the she's... I like what you say about the most one of the most influential women in Europe mm. ever, perhaps, mm. because her control over not just the English court is the other French. Um, what? Well, where was it? She was. She was. Well, she's Eleanor of Aquitaine, Aquitaine, but and actually, she probably spent quite a lot of her time in Aquitaine. Originally, she was sometimes acted as regent in England, but after they fell out of it and before the rebellion, she actually was probably spent a lot of her time in France. But there was other areas of France she brought with her, not just Aquitaine. Gascony as well. Gascony, that's it. Area. Yeah. So she's got this huge. Um, huge areas of France that she can essentially pull the strings of behind. Mm. And that's where Richard's based, and Richard is her favourite. So she's really behind him. Right. And she outlives Henry, which is another reason why she's so influential. So she's going to be there under Richard as well. Mm. Anyway, the reason that (coughs) everything falls apart with them is uh, Henry's promiscuity. Not on the level of Henry I, but apparently he had about 11 illegitimate children. Which isn't bad. Pretty good going. Going, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely followed in his grandfather's footsteps. But most scandalous was Rosamund Clifford, who, as we said, after the birth of John, he falls actually in love, probably, with Rosamund, and he's just with her openly. Oh, that's nice. It's nice, but it's a bit scandalous at the time, because he's not even pretending that she's just his mistress. He's like, yeah, I'm with her. And his 11 children aren't with her. No, not all (laughs) with her, no. Um, And... When she died um, in 1176, rumour that she might have been poisoned by Eleanor of Aquitaine, but probably not true because she was in prison. Um, He was actually put her in um, this quite nice fancy abbey, and after he died, they took her out and put her outside because they thought it was scandalous that this mistress and adulteress was buried inside. Anyway, the big scandal of Henry's reign is Thomas Beckett. Yeah, let's have a look at this. Before we get anywhere with this, first thing to say is that it's Beckett, not a Beckett. As a lot of people say. Why do people say that? Apparently just describe, in error, put a Beckett. And then it got sent down and people just kept on writing it. Mm. But he wasn't called Thomas a Beckett, just Thomas Beckett. So, Henry wanted to bring the church to heel. His early years, he did a fairly good job. But 1162, the old Archbishop of Canterbury dies and he sees an opportunity to really move things along again. So... He puts in place Thomas Beckett, who had been his loyal Chancellor for the last eight years, and makes him Archbishop of Canterbury. So his man is now Chancellor and Archbishop, Head of Church and State, in terms of offices. He thinks he's got it made. Unfortunately, despite the fact that many thought that Beckett was too worldly a man and disrespectful to the Church to be of the cloth... Too worldly? Oh, yeah. Worth telling. Yeah, he'd acted against the Church quite a lot, and he was quite a, quite a character in his, his own right, Thomas Beckett. But once he becomes Archbishop... He seems to change and dedicates himself to being the perfect bishop. 
So from the off, he's angering uh, Henry, so he resigns his position as Chancellor, which is a pretty good hint that things aren't going to go quite the way Henry expected. Um, he excommunicates Henry's chief forester without consulting him. Henry, that is, not the forester, obviously, <laughs> told. Um, and he denied Henry's younger brother marriage, and then he died, uh, the brother died soon afterwards, which many people thought was maybe a broken heart. Oh, sad. goodness me. So There's lots not of love things going on here. No wonder they love, yeah. Victorians liked all these stories. Indeed, yeah. and stuff. So he's not pleasing Henry too much, but what Henry wants to do um, is to get more control. So he objects in particular to criminal clerks or criminal clergy who used to escape state punishment by appealing to an ecclesiastical court. Mm. So Henry's saying, right, from now on, you can't do that anymore. They're going to be tried in my courts, in the state and the royal courts. Beckett opposes this forced to back down a bit, but Henry's clearly not happy about this. He's thinking, right, I need to really step this up a bit, because I wasn't expecting Mm. to get this. So in 1164, the Constitutions of Clarendon, uh, Henry presents bishops with the statements of his customary rights over the church, and he requires them to promise to observe these customs. So this includes things such as not allowing papal legates to come in without permission, him having control over appointments and the vacancies, things that we've had uh, with Anselm previously. Mm. Again, Beckett isn't too happy about this, gives in, um, but then repents and decides to stand against Henry again. So Henry's getting a bit fed up with him, and then um, he basically forfeits all of his estates, trumps up some charges against him, calls him to come to Northampton and seek trial, but uh, Beckett goes off into exile and seeks protection from the Pope. Stays there for about six years, but then in 1170, Henry has his young Henry son crowned. And this would, of course, be done by the Archbishop of Canterbury, but because he's not very happy with the Archbishop of Canterbury, it's done by the Archbishop of York. Beckett hears about this and is not happy. So he storms back to England, excommunicates all of the bishops, the Archbishop of York, all the other ones that are at the ceremony, and demands that it should be done by him. Because he's the Archbishop he can excommunicate of a bishop? Wow. Yeah, because he's the one who's the top up, chap. Yeah. yeah. Henry's not too happy about this. And then at a dinner... Henry, exasperated, shouts out the famous phrase that led to the death of Thomas Beckett. No, do you know what that phrase is? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. 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 Famous one. Who will rid Famously, it's who will rid me of this turbulent priest. Yeah. But apparently that's not what he actually said. It's what? turning into QI, this one. What, it what, is, what, this yeah. is, He's not called a Beckett. He didn't say who yeah. will rid me of this... What he actually said, apparently, was what miserable drones and traitors have I nurtured and promoted in my household who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric. Mm, doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? Not quite as good. Four knights hear him, a bit drunk, head off to Canterbury, try and deal with Thomas Beckett. So initially they think, oh, we'll take him back, we'll arrest him, we'll do whatever. But Beckett, he's there, he's prepared, he's at the altar at Canterbury, and he says, no, he doesn't go with them, he just stays where he is. He knows what's coming. The knights get cross, come back. He knows what's coming? Pretty much. He's preparing for this, I think. Oh, uh, right. Knights come back with swords and axes and instruments or whatever. Hack at him, kill him, strike him on the head, and he dies. He's killed at the altar of Canterbury Cathedral. That's a good way for a bishop to go, though. I mean, and he it's doesn't probably because resist, which is very much martyrdom. Mm. The fact yeah. that he just stoically... On the altar. Yeah. The impact of this is that it scandalises the whole of Christendom. It's probably the most scandalous thing that happens in the period, really. One of the most scandalous things in the history of English royalty. Yeah, it's only Henry VIII who's going to come near him. Yeah. Um, Beckett is canonised in 1173, becomes a saint, and Canterbury becomes a major pilgrimage centre. 
Um, but Henry gets blamed for this. The Pope initially puts his territories under papal edict, meaning that there is effectively no religious observance there, and he's really under threat. Under who? Uh, who's what? Henry's territories. So all of Henry's territories. Under... Yeah. Mm. Well, certainly in Europe, anyway. So Henry, lots of diplomacy with Rome, goes off to Ireland, keeps his head down, pleases them by taking control of the bestial Irish, and then eventually he's able to effectively get away with it. Huh. Still very scandalous. Many historians do tend to sympathise more with Henry than Beckett. Beckett's seen as being deliberately awkward, frustrating everybody, and in almost looking for a martyr's death. Yeah, and he didn't order it necessarily. There's no, nothing to say that he definitely orders it. No, and Henry very repentant afterwards. And it's pretty annoying that he can say who is uh, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and then not get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> the, the You've got one chance of getting this right. Yeah. So, there's the scandal. Thomas Beckett, a bit of promiscuity, and uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine. That's big. It's good stuff. It's really big stuff. I mean, there's there's 11 kids. Check. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's religious stuff. Check. There's, aside from the religious stuff, from him not getting on with the church, getting all the bishops to sign that, there's Beckett. Yeah. Um, brilliant. I mean... Great stuff. Really good. Really good. Nine. I can't see how it would be improved, though. I might go ten. Nine. Henry VIII is going to be pretty yeah. big. I'm going nine and leaving room for Howfield with Henry. I'm going to give him. Uh, I don't know. I somehow. I think maybe because I sympathise with him, not killing Beckett, obviously, but that he probably didn't mean for it to happen, but it's such a big scandal. It is. I mean, if it wasn't. If this was taken. If this was removed, mm. there'd be far, far less scandal. There'd probably be around four or five. Yeah. And he didn't even mean for this to happen, so it's not really him. But it did. Bang. Nine. I'm giving eight and a half because he didn't mean for it to happen. Okay. So that's 17 and a half a scandal. Very big score, yet again, for Henry. Subjectivity. Now, we've had quite a lot already, but this is really where Henry comes into his own. Mm. As he said, he restores order after the Civil War, so he'd got rid of all those mercenaries who dis- disappeared apparently like phantoms very quickly. He was known as Castle Breaker because of the speed and force with which he destroyed all the people's castles that were against him. And he also restored the balance in terms of castles owned by the king and castles owned by the nobles. So under Stephen, the ratio is something like five to one in favour of the nobles, but it comes down to two to one under Henry. And he builds in reaction to the nobles, like Orford built there to secure East Anglia. Also, with the earls, he doesn't create any new earldoms or really grant much land, which means as people die, there's a steady decline in terms of how many earls there are and how much land isn't owned by the crown so again there's much more royal control over the nobles Mm -hmm. and he restores royal revenue so at the start of the reign it was only about ten and a half thousand pounds a year that the crown was earning at the end of the reign it's up to something like twenty two thousand pounds a year so he sort of doubled how much money the country is earning brilliant which is all good but law and justice where he's really impressive he's sought to restore public order to how it had been under henry the first but at the uh, assize of clarendon 1166, huge step forward in English legal history. Trial by ordeal and combat, although not completely um, illegalised, are essentially replaced by having this sort of grand jury of 12 who decide on matters based on evidence rather than just what your hand looks like a day after having a hot iron rod put on it. (laughs) And what they do is they go around the country uh, sort of in circuits and judging on issues. So it takes less royal time as well. Yeah. And this is seen as sort of the establishment of common law mm. in England, whereby it's uniform, the whole country, it's to the same standards. 
and he reforms uh, very complicated old forms of justice dating back to Saxon times where you had overlapping courts and where status in society, land ownership was often as important as the crime itself and it got much more clarity, much more focus, much more sort of logical, modern, if we mm. can say, that system. Brilliant. Well, that's a big point. And so the Exchequer and the judges travel around the whole of England probably every other year uh, with panels going around. And to make sure there isn't corruption, um, he was concerned that sheriffs might be reluctant to perform their sort of public function rather than just gathering money. So he gave jurisdiction to his more faithful men to enter any court across the country to make sure that things were being done justly Brilliant. and imposed harsh punishments if people wouldn't let them do it. And he played an active role himself, so he often sat in courts and actually gave judgments in person. Well, he needed a break from running around, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so the only time he sits, <laughs> yeah. he probably doesn't sit, he's probably standing, walking yeah. around, pacing, pacing. Yeah, looking exactly. at his watch. <laughs> That's great. That's got to be what, the best subjectivity. It's probably the most since um, probably Alfred, really. Yeah, yeah. Someone who actually cares yeah. about his subjects. Yeah, because he went around doing the burrs and... Uh, mm. And he did, again, judgments and he did all the things that he transcribed. I think that, I mean, that's a quantum leap for justice. It really is. And something that you can really um, connect to today with a magistrate's mm. court. Yeah. We've also got more for Henry, his character, because he's a very vibrant character. We've got a lot to him, so he's got a good sense of humour, a little bit in the vein of uh, Rufus. So there's one uh, good example where Hugh, the Bishop of Lincoln, had offended Henry, and so Henry had a violent temper, his other side to him. So he was very cross with him. So they were sat together in a clearing in a wood, as well as all Henry's earls. And apparently Henry's so cross that he was just in this sort of silent fury, steaming away. So he sent for a needle and thread so that he could stitch um, a bandage for a wound that he got in his finger. So he was stitching away. And then Hugh, looking at him, remembered the old story about William the Conqueror being a bastard because he was the daughter of um, a Falasian tanners. Yeah, yeah. And where they sort of you know, stitch animals together. Mm -hmm. So looking at that, it reminded him, and he said rather dryly, how you resemble your cousins at Falaise, i.e. your yeah. son of a bastard. bastard <laughs> son, yeah. um, Earl's pretty shocked that he'd made this jive, considering how cross Henry was with him, but Henry rolled on the floor, laughing uproariously, even explained the joke to people who didn't actually get it. Uh. And they were reconciled. <laughs> Good humoured man. He's also very generous. So like we were saying, the Alfredian thing about caring about the subjects. In 1176, there was a really bad famine in Maine and Anjou. So Henry got all of his sort of royal foodstuffs together across his empire and provided enough grain to feed about 10,000 people there. <laughs> Fed them on Dutchy original yeah. <laughs> cracker breads. <laughs> uh, until the problem was resolved. And we think some like the potato crisis and famine in Ireland yeah. centuries later where they don't really bother. He does something. Also employed a Templar knight to distribute one-tenth of all food brought to the royal court amongst the poor. And uh, cared for people who were shipwrecked, where apparently people used to take advantage of them, steal their stuff, molest them, all sorts of things. He prescribes heavy penalties against anyone that takes advantage. Mm. And also apparently a lot of his generous acts were actually done in secret, so it wasn't like he went out to the public, gave a bit of money to three people and then went off again. He actually just got people to say, oh, go off and do this and do that. He doesn't always seem to be doing it. Oh, it makes the Beckett thing seem a bit more out of character. It does a little bit. Um, come to that, that right. side of him. Intellectual, there's lots of stuff. He's very intellectual, he reads books regularly, spoke French and Latin very well, understood English quite well, so he's master of the language. Great knowledge of the law, remarkable memory. He's also quite a humble man. So although he knows about kingship and being powerful and people not questioning his authority. He doesn't have much interest in ceremony. 
dresses quite casually in a short tunic, eats a sparing diet while he's off, mm. running about the place, easily approachable. And uh, apparently when he was very ill in 1170, he tended to be buried in a small church. He didn't want to be in a massive... He's not in Westminster? Cathedral. Well, he, 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 isn't. He, he isn't in Westminster. He's in a big area, I think, Fontreveau. Oh, yeah, French. France is yeah, where he, yeah. he's buried, because they basically thought, no, we can't have this. Yeah. Buried in a proper abbey. Um, but the other side to him is he does have a massive temper on him. Mm. And he was said to be su- such rages that apparently he wants to the carpet. He was so close. Oh, I've heard that, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. So that's the other side to him. He's also <laughs> a little bit mischievous, so he liked to keep his courtiers on his toes, so he wasn't didn't have a regular pattern of action. So if he said that he was going to stay somewhere for several days, early the next morning he'd promptly leave and everyone have to go running off after him. On the other hand, he'd say, oh, we'll have an early start and everyone will be ready and he'd just sleep in. So he quite liked changing plans just to keep people on their toes and seeing what they did. I really like the sound of him. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. The only downside, really, for subjectivity, as we said, it's that temper, and particularly, as we see with Beckett, although he probably didn't intend for that to happen, we can see that his fury can spill out sometimes, yeah, yeah. and it's not always good. And apparently he was seen as being a bit of an oath-breaker as well, so he'd often promise things to people, probably at more high politics rather than justice, but he promised quite a lot and then mm. do the opposite. When well, he's wily. He's wily, yeah. Um, he was also criticised for muttering and doodling during maths. Doing church. maths? Maths. Oh, I thought that's something we had in common. No, no. <laughs> well, I'm probably sure if you had maths, actually, yeah. yeah. What would you do? Yeah. So apparently the only things he lacked in his character were probably chastity and sloth. Like yeah. laziness. Yeah. So, that's him for subjectivity. We've got a good, fun, likeable character that actually cares about his people and does a lot of nice it's things brilliant. for It's brilliant. It's a huge reform of the law. Yeah. Stable reign. It's peaceful, certainly in England, for pretty much the whole period. Um, I'm going to have to give the... The same score as it did to Alfred, mm. I reckon. I mean, I was going to say probably less because Alfred's was the first and it's a big jump, but mm. really the whole justice system is light years ahead of the time. It really is, yeah. I mean, obviously when you're comparing, and I'm sure we all do at the end of the process, you weigh up the context. But I think mm. just looking at this objectively on its own right, it's a huge amount of stuff that Henry II People does. must have been really pleased with that whole not having to... Survivor drowning to prove that he didn't steal a loaf of bread. Yeah. Although apparently he probably actually wasn't very popular at the time because he was also quite a, a dominant hard ruler. But I think after he had died, people realised mm. what they'd had. I can't think of anyone else who'd be more deserving of this in mm. the future. We've got to go on the merits. I'm going... I'm going another nine. <laughs> another nine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm going to... I'm going to go for another eight because I'm just looking at that 17 for Alfred. And I think... Alfred probably a little bit more caring about his people, but you'd rather have lived under Henry II because obviously things are better then. Yeah. You don't have the Vikings, yeah. but I think that's just the context that's of the, the time. Context. So I'm giving him an 8, so that's a 17 for subjectivity. Oh, this is massive score. Scores are totting up. Longevity. So 1154 to 1189, so he rules for 35 years, which it's is not the bad. same as Henry I, his grandfather. Oh, uh, yeah. The only downside, I suppose, is that he does start at 21, so he's 56 when he dies. He's maybe a bit younger yeah. than he could have done. But as you said, he's so active, so moving, I think he just wore his body out. That's top score as well, shared with Henry the First. No, 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 don't forget Ethelred the Unready. Uh, a massive... <laughs> the, the rubbish king with oh, 38 years. Yeah. Nevertheless, another good score. Brilliant. Dynasty, not the programme. He has eight children with Eleanor of Aquitaine, but only four of them actually survive him. 
So lots of them may survive to adulthood, but only four actually live out. That's about the average, I'd say. So he has four. Um, and for all the troubles that he had with them, apparently he did still love his sons. So as he said, he kept forgiving them. And apparently on hearing that uh, the young Henry had died, he said, he cost me much, but I wish he had lived to cost me more. Oh, that's very sweet. It is. And the tragedy for Henry, really, is that despite all of his success, he died thinking, really, that he'd failed because he hadn't been able to secure the succession that he wanted and because he had that rebellion from Richard. Yeah. I Actually, on the whole dynasty and humour bit, I quote I've heard from him with all his illegitimate children. Mm. Um, as he lay dying, still had a bit of humour, he said something like, my, uh, my legitimate children were the real bastards. Which yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is... Brilliant. A little bit of humour. Um, yeah. So that is a total of whopping 90.5. That's by far the highest score we've ever had. He scores big across the whole bunch. Only Dynasty, where he isn't one of the top scoring. Very that's, good stuff. That's the well, next closest being 78 with yeah. his grandfather. That's <laughs> yeah. fantastic. So now we have to consider whether or not he has that certain something... The, the legacy, the impact, the great achievement, the force of personality, all of which comes together for what we call... Rex Factor! It's great stuff. It's brilliant. I, I can't... I mean, everything we've got written down here is good stuff. Yeah, as the, far as medieval... If we're comparing him to <laughs> the king of the era, um, that, this era that you have in your mind... Mm. It's probably Henry II. It's like almost the definition of the proper sort of medieval fighting, justice, etc. King. It's brilliant. everything. Absolutely brilliant. The only bad points against his name are the empire largely inherited rather than one through conquest. But that was the that was the age, wasn't it? As you say, we think age, yeah. we started to call it an empire when we ourselves were building empire, yeah. and we're looking back at examples of that. So really, he was just getting on with what he was given, he and was. He was trying to secure it for his sons, but they were just mucking it up. Yeah. Bloody sons. Yeah. But, nevertheless, very impressive that he does pretty much maintain it for that whole period, despite the vast amount of land. I think this is going to be easy. Uh, the only other thing is his bad parenting. That's really, really his is. biggest yeah. downfall. Yeah. He isn't able to control his sons. Yeah. However, that's that's all we've got against. That's what we've got for. It's time to make our judgement on Henry II. Does he have the Rex Factor, Ali? Of course. I This is never a sure thing. Other than his, his grandfather, which was another surefire Rex winner. But this the, this guy is has the Rex factor all over. He's He is what this was designed for. Of course, it has to be unanimous. We both have to say yes. And there's no way that I'm not going to say yes. He's, He's definitely got the Rex factor. So well done, Please. Henry II. You have joined Alfred the Great, Athelstan, William the Conqueror, Henry I, and... You're there. You've got the Rex Factor. Well done. Brilliant. Great stuff. So that's it for Henry II. He's got the Rex Factor. He's joined the illustrious group. Next week, we will be doing uh, his son, Richard I, or Richard the Lionheart. That's going to be another really juicy one. Another good stuff. Until then, goodbye for me. Bye-bye. Remember to email or tweet.